This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. You may wish to adjust the dial. You are currently tuned into the wrong station. My dearest mamma, how can I describe the splendors of London in springtime? It must be so changed since last you visited during the reign of Farmer George. The Prince Regent has transformed its culture, fashion, manners, and architecture until they must indeed surpass those of any city in any other age of this world. If ever there was a time and place for young-ish Canadian just recently come into his father's inheritance to search for a wife, then... This certainly must be it. Perhaps, to your eye, it might all seem risque. The men without powder in their hair, the women all dressed in diamonds and ribbons and sleek-waisted dresses of Parisian cut, the gilded opulence of Almacs all awaft with the fragrances of Mr. Floris. But, I can assure you, the son you have raised is no rake. My sole mission in London is to find myself a bride of breeding and virtue, while the dizzy glamour of the social round might amuse and entertain, I know full well that it is not for me, not for long, and that the place of a gentleman is back home in his province, managing his affairs there and investments abroad. And so I hope and pray that I shall return swiftly to your loving bosom, accompanied by the ring of wedding bells. As for my health, I can indemnify that it is hail. The one complaint I might make is for my teeth, which do continue to ache terribly, as they had begun to do before I left our beloved country home. I must admit I am somewhat embarrassed by the state of them. Every smile in London seems to be so radiant and white. I might tell myself that my yellow detention is a sign of eligibility. After all, how better to show that one has inherited a sizable fortune in Jamaican sugar than to have a handful of cavities. But, nevertheless, I find myself unwilling to smile, even, nay, especially, around the fairest of ladies. However, all hope is not lost. One of Father's business associates has recommended me to the services of a French dentist, an erstwhile Jacobin. Shocking, I know, though we have won the war a second time now, and may afford to be magnanimous. By the name of Monsieur Lecroc. If all goes well... 
When next we speak, it shall be, on my part, through a set of pearlescent fangs as white as one of Mr. Brummel's cravats. With all my love and fondest regards, your darling baby boy, Charles. My most precious mamma. Success! Your dear son is now the proud master of a set of teeth as refined and white as the sugar loaves that paid for them. Monsieur Le Croc was a sheer delight, an absolute original. He is a gentleman of what they now call Haiti, a fair-complexioned man of the Jeanne du Colère caste, who studied dentistry in France after enfranchisement. I told him that, as a former revolutionary, he was my friend since the revolution had destroyed Haiti's sugar industry, driving up the value of my father's Jamaican shares. Well, we shared a great laugh over that, and have since become fast friends. I was, at first, unsettled to find that his establishment was not constructed in the most salubrious quarter of the city. Indeed, the trip there somewhat moderated my glittering impression of London. I was even accosted en route by one audacious rogue who claimed to have lost his leg fighting for Wellington at Badajoz. A lie, undoubtedly. When Father and I visited the peninsula to deliver sugar to the army, I was struck by how the soldiers all seemed to be adolescents. We joked that we were delivering candy to children. But this man, and his street full of fellow cripples, all seemed to be... older. Perhaps the war just aged them, but I find that preposterous. Regardless, I relented and tossed him a halfpenny, which I regretted immediately. No, given the preponderance of such wretches, one might say that... <laughs> German Street, it was not... But this, as I was to discover, was by design. Do you remember that I mentioned how radiant was each smile one seemed to pass in London society? Well, as it transpires, most of these smiles are works not of the Lord, but of Monsieur Le Croc. I, it seems, am not alone among my peers in enjoying four to five lumps of sugar in my tea, or the odd plate of jam pastries before lunch, or a bottle of Nectar sweet to Kai to wash down after one's after-dinner pudding. Indeed, it seems that all of London society hides a brown and mottled secret behind its smiling white visage. The work of Monsieur Le Croc, therefore, is not only concealment, but discretion. Hence, the obscure locale. His offices are most generously appointed, and give one the impression of both refinement and medical hygiene. In one room, he keeps an astonishing collection of tusks, some of them, he claims, saw living from the heads of bull elephants, at enormous risk to the lives of the native persons he engages to cut them. Does the elephant often die when his tusks are removed? I asked. Oh, indeed, came the reply, and off slowly. But it is worth the extra risk and expense to harvest the ivory live, given, he claims, from a professional's intuition, that it is of superior quality to that which comes from elephants dead already. With this, and other such dazzling claims of modern science, did Monsieur Le Croc win over my full and entire confidence. Of course, a denture carved fully from ivory is perfectly serviceable. Even one carved from harder sorts of wood might suffice for a mere shopkeep or <laughs> American president. But for the elite, I am assured, there is no substitute for actual human teeth. And Monsieur Le Croc keeps... Thousands of these, tens of thousands on site as well. 
Unlike the ivory, these are not hidden in the back, but set out in huge glass cylinders at the front desk, like confectionaries kept in the window to tantalize passing children. Monsieur L has them sorted according to size, type, and quality, and laughs that these teeth, so much more valuable than ivory, should be so much less risky to keep in the open. Nobody, he says, would even consider stealing human ivory. Society, even society of a lower sort, would think of the thief too odd, or worse yet, ghoulish. And so he keeps them on proud display, as any honest craftsman of his skills and character would. Now, I must at this juncture confess to you an odd occurrence. As I stood in the atrium discussing business and how kind the wars have been to our family's fortunes, I heard a low rustle behind me. Turning in surprise, I found myself staring into one of those tooth-filled cylinders of glass. And most astonishingly, it seemed to me that those teeth at my eye level had rearranged themselves into a sort of terrible grin. Is something the matter? Monsieur Lacroix asked me. Oh, not at all, I said, turning back. A moment later, of course, when I checked again, the teeth were arranged completely at random, with no order even resembling a smile. Charming, Mama, what tricks the mind can play. After taking the measurements of one's jaw, Monsieur L carves the denture out of ivory by hand, and then personally selects teeth that he believes to be best suited to the client, sometimes fishing through the glass cylinders elbow-deep, finding one tooth by memory among thousands. Clipping the roots with iron pliers, he then sets proprietary adhesive and lovingly fits the clipped teeth into their new ivory frame. When all is said and done, the resulting denture is a thing of beauty and elegance, almost of jewelry, and it makes a man look ten years younger, a veritable prince, when fitted into his mouth. My dearest mamma, you should see your bouncing baby boy now. He looks once again like a man in his early thirties, dazzlingly suited to wooing even the most youthful brides. With my most winning smile, your dandy boy, Charles. My adored and adorable mamma, I write you once again in the highest of spirits. Since the arrival of my new teeth, I have become quite this season's beau, and have made it my pleasure to call upon young ladies in the drawing rooms of several of the city's most luxuriant homes. In particular, I have my eye and heart set upon the hand of one compelling young lady. Her name is Marie, and as her father, recently deceased, was a French émigré, she may yet turn out to be another way in which the past decades of war have showered blessings upon our house. She was raised in Montreal, and speaks perfect English, at least to my Canadian ear. But despite her incomparable beauty, she has found herself undervalued in the marketplace of Amour, given the financial difficulties her family has experienced since Papa's death. This is no doubt why the Vicomtesse is keen to see her daughter courted by a modest, yet wealthy colonial gentleman like myself. Marie herself seems to have little interest in me despite our mere twenty-five years' age difference. Indeed, I was quite delighted by the precocity and boldness which she showed in upbraiding me for my business affairs. The child, hilariously, has convinced herself she is an abolitionist and anti-war, even going so far as to forswear sugar and tobacco. I've no idea who put such ideas in her pretty little head, but I am content to indulge her at the moment. Tobacco, after all, is an unladylike vice. And as for sugar, well... Her teeth and figure are, as yet, unspoilt. 
Of course, such notions are charming naivetes when they come from the mouth of a pretty child. But she will have to abandon them once we are married. Fortunately, I am unapprehensive on that count. Many's the successful marriage that grew from awkward beginnings, and many's the wayward wife, who learned to see things her husband's way. Nevertheless, a wealthy young-ish bachelor must keep his options open, and I continue to make the rounds. Why, tomorrow alone I shall be calling upon the Baron Shelley and Moody, both with daughters named Donica, if you can believe it. I was disappointed to find some spots of decay had already begun to appear upon my new denture, and an apologetic Monsieur Lacroix assured me that this was an inevitability, since that which rots living teeth can only decay dead ones faster. I shall admit that, since adopting my new smile, I had assumed I was off the hook and indulged more than usual in my favorite sweeties, my Turkish delights and crystal pineapples, my Donovan's nougat and praline cums. Yet there is no cause for alarm. Monsieur Lacroix provides good rates for his returning customers, and it looks like there is no end in sight for the profitability of sugar. Unless Marie gets her way. <laughs> and so I have commissioned him to begin work on a new denture for me. An even finer one that includes molars, which, given the difficulty of extracting them, are the rarest and most expensive teeth that can be found. In answer to your question, the teeth are all honestly obtained, either from willing donors among the lower orders, or, more commonly, from the battlefield dead, hence their common name, Waterloo Teeth. Monsieur L. tells me that many of the finest teeth currently on the market were indeed obtained from the battlefield, and so it seems to me practically a patriotic duty to wear them. It warms one's heart to know that, in some small way, one provides a second life to those dear fallen boys. Yours in solemn love of king and country, Charles. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. My most prized and cherished mama. Must I share with you the good news? Or have you divined it already from the joyous resonances of the ether? I am to be married. Perhaps, given the optimistic tone of my last letter, you are not surprised. But much has transpired in London since last your bubbling baby boy was able to find time to express warm sentiments to his... Lovely, loving mamma. You see, I, through sheer ill fortune and no fault of my own, have become embroiled in two separate scandals. It has been a most trying time, in which I have longed ever so much for the comfort of your soft and gentle bosom. The first scandal involved my beloved and admirable bride-to-be, Marie, who I must confess has behaved toward me in a most inconsiderate and unwively manner in public for all to see as we promenaded, with the Vicomtesse's permission, of course, along the greens of Kensington Gardens. I had made some polite and innocuous comment about the advancement of her figure when she rounded on me quite unexpectedly and with the aspect of a harpy upon her face. She told me at great volume and in no uncertain terms that she considered me a dastardly miscreant, slave master, and war profiteer to boot. 
She went on at length, borrowing some choice phrases from Shakespeare and, I believe, the ruder works of Moliere. Well, you know your son and his mild disposition. I was taken aback, but managed to respond in a handful of calm, articulate phrases, even though such public insolence would surely have warranted a stern response. Nevertheless, the whole affair was very public and overheard, and afterwards my words were entirely misquoted and taken out of context by the gossip rags which circulate the lesser sort of London club and salon. So much for that, knowing myself to be in the right, I continued with my head held high. And as for the other scandal, it consisted solely of some ugly and unfounded rumors involving myself and my chums at a gin shop I have never even been to. It was really nothing, so I'll move swiftly past it, but suffice to say, my good and noble name was dragged through the mud a second time in one month. Mama, you cannot understand my desolation. Thank goodness for Monsieur L. and my new denture, for I am afraid I came to lean rather heavily on my dear delicious powdered marzipans, mince cakes, and king's bastards, with extra hazelnut, during this time of hardship. Indeed, my grin had come quite to resemble its old brown self again when the crock, my angel, arrived at the front door with my new and shining set of teeth. They are quite magnificent, darling mamma, more so even than the last set. One feels that one has never had quite so many teeth in one's mouth. One feels like one is quite so full of teeth that one could bite through anything, through the very whispers of one's enemies, through the stuff of this world itself. Of course, the large and high-quality molars, taken from the corpse of a Fleming, I believe, have, have caused me some discomfort. Indeed, the new denture is quite so full of teeth that it does not sit exactly comfortably in my jaw, rasping somewhat at the gristle and tissue in the back of my mouth. A lingering discomfort, but surely worthwhile in the long run. One cannot put a price on one's smile. Did I call Monsieur L. my angel? An apt comparison, given that angels serve as messengers, and his arrival seemed to herald another of even greater importance. For no sooner had I finished installing my new plate of Waterloo enamel between my poor tender gums, than another call came at my door. It was, of all people, the Vicomtesse, whom I had never anticipated seeing again. She was in a mood to, as the common folk say, talk turkey, we sat in the drawing-room, drinking cream sherry, sweetened, as I take it, with a good bolt of fancy molasses. I could tell she found the thick drink excessive, but she gulped it down for politeness' sake, and confided in me the true extent of her family's debt. I must confess their penury was more desperate than I had anticipated, but, given my recent scandals, both real and alleged, I, too, was in dire straits. No woman of standing would marry a man with a tainted name unless she had to. And yet, my sweet Marie had to. It was a match made in heaven. We toasted the union of our families over a second unctuous glass of sherry. Needless to say, I was overjoyed. Not even the Vicomtesse's grim countenance could put a damper on my high spirits. I cannot wait for you to meet Marie on our wedding day, Mama. Her skin as white as sugar, her hair the color of syrup, her voice as sweet as nectar, her skin as smooth as molasses sweet and sherry. Expect your invitation soon, Mama. It shall be the finest day of my life. Oh, um, 
Before I finish, I shall update you briefly on my health. I am, as they say, in good cess, and since I indulge only in sugar, limiting myself to little more than a bottle and a half of wine or spirits per day, my figure has not been too damaged by my stay in London. I will confess my sleep has been somewhat disturbed of late. No doubt the stress of these ridiculous scandals, perhaps confounded by too many candied chitlings before bed. I've dreamt of teeth every single night. Your sweet baby boy, Charles. My most loved, doted upon, missed, longed for, treasured, appreciated, and revered mamma. The wedding approacheth, and I am utterly dizzy with the preparations. I will confess the work would go more quickly if I spent less time fussing over the details of my next enter in the back rooms of Monsieur Le Croc's. The problem, I find, is not that there are too few perfect teeth, but too many to choose from. Monsieur L. theorizes this is because many of the boys we sent soldiering in Europe died so young that their teeth had not yet begun to rot. Well, I confided to him, then you should offer me a discount, since the sugar my father and I sold the army was heavily cut with sawdust. <laughs> we shared a great laugh at that one. Monsieur L. is a fanatic for my wit. And I am a fanatic for his work. I do so love to watch him sort the teeth, the careful way he examines everyone for flaws, and the meditative sound of him clipping off their roots. These quiet moments mean so much more now that the teeth dreams deprived me of my rest. I asked him one afternoon, what becomes of the roots once clipped? His answer surprised and delighted me. He told me they were crushed by indigence at the workhouse and then sold to a manufacturer of bone char. Bone char! Of exactly the type we use to refine our sugar! And as he said this to me, I was suddenly dazzled by an ecstatic vision in which I could see all the moving parts of a glory system and how they fit into one another, how the wars raised the price of Jamaican sugar so we could invest in more sugar, how the sugar created the need for dentures, and how that same war provided the teeth Monsieur L needed to make them, and how the byproduct of those teeth helped men like me refine more sugar and more cheaply, and how our revenues allowed His Majesty to continue the war. And so on, and ever upward, spiraling into infinite ascent, oh, Rapturous vision, oh, ebullient and providential, how elegant, that it all hang together so neatly. I felt tears springing to my eye. Oh, Mama, the Lord has smiled upon us, in both metaphoric and literal sense. Your elated boy, Charles. Dear Mother, I suppose I must call you Mother now. Though I find it abhorrent to admit any familial connection to that man, it was my misfortune to marry. Forgive me, for I shall be blunt. I am writing to inform you of the death of your son. No doubt you shall be curious as to what caused the death of a man just past the prime of his life, even one in as wretched a condition as your son had inflicted on himself. This letter will inflame your curiosity, 
rather than satisfy it. No doubt, you will remember, madam, the ghoulish mouthpiece of dead men's parts with which your son filled his jaws on our wedding day. I still flinch to recall the clicking feel of his kiss. If memory serves, he had one made for you as well, and you sported it proudly, though quite clearly your mouth was filling up with blood, and you were in the most regrettable pain. Shortly after the wedding, this set of false teeth was already badly decayed, and my husband's mouth smelled of death at all hours of the day and night. Needless to say, he being himself, he already had that macabre craftsman of his concocting some set of tusks worthy of Lucifer's own dentist. Do you know how many teeth belong in a human mouth, madam? Traditionally, it is no more than 32. At his last excess, your son appeared sporting a plate of over 60 human teeth, crammed into the denture like flower stems in a bouquet. I cannot express to you my revulsion. Of course, he was quite proud of his new folly and decided to organize a dinner party in order to show it off. Lecroc was invited, of course, being his muse, as were the rest of that pack of hyenas with whom Charles did such unspeakable things at that gin shop. Not wishing to be outdone, these men also showed up with overflowing mouths. For some, this involved a snaggle-toothed look with extra teeth wedged in seemingly at random. Others took a more orderly approach, with rows of cuspids spiraling into their mouths, lamprey-like. Some brought their wives, others their mistresses. They all drank a great deal and became appalling. This, incidentally, was the night of June 18th, the anniversary of Waterloo. Indeed, your son was aware of this. At the stroke of eleven, he rose to deliver a toast, grinning idiotically through those echelons of strangers' teeth, all stained red with cloying port. A toast, he said, to the heroes of Waterloo. After reliving the events in my head a thousand times, I am convinced he did not mean it as some grisly joke. No, worse than that. I am certain at that moment he was filled with a patriotic earnestness, a sense of his own nobility of spirit. We raised our glasses and drank. Madam, this is where my story becomes difficult to believe. I will not try to convince you of its truth, because to be frank, I do not care what you think. Nevertheless, he was your son, and so I feel obliged to inform you of the loathsome facts. As he opened his mouth to consume another of his endless, vile sweets, a curious expression crossed his face, and he paused, letting the confectionery fall as he lifted a hand to his jaw. There was a thick, wet sound, and then a click as his teeth snapped shut. Something thudded to the table and bounced once before laying still, oozing a red pool into the tablecloth. I leaned forward to get a better look. It was his tongue. I heard an odd, muffled scream and looked back up to see your son howling through clenched jaws. The teeth began to, how shall I put this, unfurl themselves from his mouth like a fern frond, or as if pulled on like a string of beads by some invisible fist. He was lifted, screaming, off his feet, 
and dragged forward across the table, scattering plates and crystal tumblers, and his own tongue. I did nothing to help him. I wondered why his friends stayed back until I looked around and saw that their plight was much the same. The man beside me had opened his mouth. He was silent, but his eyes rolled with panic. I realized his mouth had opened too wide, and that the tendons and joints were creaking, and that the skin of his cheeks was beginning to split. The awful sound came a moment later. I looked away. I did not need to look in order to know his jaws had opened, the full 180 degrees. Perhaps you think this is all some sick invention of mine. Shall I describe what happened to the man whose teeth dragged down his head until his back broke, and they were able to gnash at his own entrails? Or the man whose teeth forced themselves backwards until they pierced his lower jaw like a beard, his brow like a coronet? Or the man whose smile decided, violently, to face the other way? No, I shall not bore you with senseless descriptions of the things it has been my misfortune to see. Just know that not all the women were immune. Some of the wives and mistresses had visited Monsieur Le Croc themselves. All this time, my husband continued to scream, until the last tooth had left his head, dropping him to mule helplessly at the center of the table, diseased gums now plainly visible in an empty mouth. The string of floating teeth curled together again in midair, rolling slowly into a ball that hovered between the candles and the chandelier. And then, one at a time, with a wet noise, teeth began to pull themselves from the dentures of the other guests, floating through the air to join the orb. Your son, slowly drowned in his blood as the orb waxed like a hunter's moon above him. Before long, it had reached the size of a cannonball, or human head. It was dripping softly, but other than that, it made no sound. Shall I be fanciful and say watched of a thing that had no eyes? Nevertheless, it watched, motionless, until your son's eyes went bloodshot and then empty. And then it fell, crashing to the tabletop so that it broke apart and teeth scattered like dice in a game of hazard, each one leaving a thin, crimson comet tail over the tablecloth. For a moment, we survivors stared at one another in amazement, blinking through the spatter that had misted our faces. And then a polite cough drew our attention to the end of the table, it was Monsieur Le Croc, standing with a polite bow. Please excuse me, ladies, he said, but I have an early start tomorrow. He was almost gone before I could bring myself to whisper, What did you do? Pausing, he half turned and gave me a bemused look. I merely made some dentures, he said. Your husband did the rest. With that, he bid us adieu and disappeared. And so shall I. I remain, unfortunately, your faithful daughter-in-law, Marie. And please, take care of your teeth. This week's episode, Sweets, was written by Alexander Saxton and performed by Liana Badewi 
and Anthony Botello. The Wrong Station is made possible with the generous support of our listeners on Patreon. Thank you to Stacy Falcon, Rushab Shukla, Brooks, Melanie Myers, Crunkly Donks, and a very special thanks to Donica Shelley Moody for helping us keep the lights, well, off. You can also support us by leaving a rating and review on iTunes, or wherever it is you listen to The Wrong Station. The Wrong Station is co-produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte Spiel, with music composed and performed on the piano by Elan Citrin, and arranged for the viola and performed by Viola Schmid. You can follow The Wrong Station on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and email us at therongstation at gmail.com. And until next time, thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>